This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. I'm so glad you've joined me for episode 59 of the show. The past two winners of the Best Original Song Academy Award were written by men who began their careers on the stage instead of in Hollywood. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, the creators of Under the Sea, began off-Broadway with Little Shop of Horrors in 1982 before they brought their stage music sensibilities to The Little Mermaid for Disney in 1989. The man who wrote sooner or later for the 1990 movie Dick Tracy, Stephen Sondheim, had been a big Broadway name long before that. West Side Story in 1958 was his first in a long list of great Broadway musicals that had his fingerprints on them. If you thought Broadway's invasion of the movies was pretty big in 1989 and 1990, in the words of Al Jolson, you ain't heard nothing yet. The year 1991 was not a step forward, but rather a seismic shift in how Broadway songs could be done in the movies, particularly in animated films where anything is possible. The movie that had Hollywood abuzz was Beauty and the Beast. It was the culmination of the work that Jeffrey Katzenberg had been doing since being in charge of Disney's film division in 1984. Katzenberg wanted to do what Disney had done with the first animated feature films, do something that had never been done before. He certainly got the filmmakers involved with Beauty and the Beast pushing the envelope in just about everything they did with the production, from the groundbreaking computer animation to the toe-tapping song score. One of the first things Katzenberg wanted to do was turn the 1756 fairy tale into a child-friendly musical. I've read the original novel, translated from French, and many of the magical elements are in the Disney movie. Also, the main plot of Belle needing to fall in love with the beast in order to break the spell is intact. The supporting characters in the castle, including Lumiere and Cogsworth, are not in the French novel, but again, there was a need to make it child-friendly. And Gaston is a new character in the Disney movie, about as evil as the human villains in Disney's movies can get. Howard Ashman had been one of the people who helped get the production of Beauty and the Beast off the ground in its new form in 1990, just as he and Minkin were collecting their awards for The Little Mermaid. Ashman wanted his follow-up to The Little Mermaid to be a Disney-fied version of the Aladdin story, but he had to put it away as Katzenberg ordered Beauty and the Beast to be next. All of the work that the filmmakers endured for 18 months paid off immensely. Beauty and the Beast was hailed as the best animated movie ever made when it was released Thanksgiving weekend in 1991. It eventually made more than $300 million worldwide, the most by far for any animated movie. Critics couldn't stop fawning over it. Even the often cranky Janet Maslin of the New York Times loved it, saying, quote, Lightning has definitely struck twice with Beauty and the Beast. End quote. Roger Ebert's four-star review said the songs in Beauty and the Beast bubble with wit and energy. That wit and energy did not go unnoticed by the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The 240 or so members loved the songs so much that they nominated not one, not two, 
but three of the seven songs from Beauty and the Beast for the Academy Award. This is the first time that one film has had three song nominations, just one piece of history that Beauty and the Beast celebrated when the Oscar nominations were announced on February 19, 1992. The film was also one of the five named as the Best Picture nominees, which made Beauty and the Beast the first animated film to receive a Best Picture Academy Award nomination. Disney certainly went all in for this Best Picture nod with ads in all the trade magazines listing all of the glowing reviews of the film. What also made it stand out was it being the only Best Picture nominee that year not rated R, and to my knowledge, the first Best Picture nominee to have a G rating since Mary Poppins. The celebration for the three song nominations was bittersweet. On March 14, 1991, 11 months before the nominations were announced and eight months before Beauty and the Beast was released, Howard Ashman died of complications from AIDS. So let's take a listen to the three songs nominated from Beauty and the Beast, going in the order in which we hear them in the film. The first song we hear in the film is Bell, which was also the first song that Ashman and Mencken wrote. It does exactly what most opening numbers do in Broadway shows. It sets up the main character's story and the people around her. The people who live in the poor provincial French town where Belle and her father live call Belle strange but special because she does nothing but read books and doesn't really engage with the people around her. It also introduces us to Gaston, whose dream of marrying Belle is also set up in the song. What makes Belle, the song, such a striking way to start an animated children's movie is the way it's performed. Anyone who has seen an opera will hear the way the melodies, voices, and thoughts often overlap, especially in the song's final minute before the cast comes together for a rousing finish to give us what would have likely resulted in a lengthy standing ovation if the film were set on the stage. Good morning. 
morning. I've come to return the book I borrowed. Finished already? Oh, I couldn't put it down. Have you got anything new? <laughs> Not since yesterday. That's all right. I'll borrow this one. That one? But you've read it twice. Well, it's my favorite. Far-off places, daring sword fights, magic spells, a prince in disguise. If you like it all that much, it's yours. But, sir... I insist. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Look, there she goes, that girl is so peculiar. I wonder if she's feeling well. With a dreamy far-off look. And her nose stuck in a book. What a puzzle to the rest of us is Belle. Oh, isn't this amazing? It's my favorite part. Behind the fair facade, I'm afraid she's rather odd, very different from the rest of us. She's nothing like the rest of us, yes, different from the rest of us is Wow, you didn't miss a shot, Gaston. You're the greatest hunter in the whole world. I know. No beast alive stands a chance against you. And no girl for that matter. It's true, LeFou. And I've got my sight set on that one. Oh, the inventor's daughter? She's the one. The lucky girl I'm going to marry. But she's... The most beautiful girl in town. I know. But... That makes her the best. And don't I deserve the best? Well, of course. I mean, you do, but... Right from the moment when I met her, saw her, I said she's gorgeous and I fell. Here in town there's only she who is beautiful as me. So I'm making plans to woo and marry Belle. Though the non-sung prologue set up the Beast story, the song Bell takes five minutes to do what most movies take three times as long to do. It reminds me of Tradition, the opening song from Fiddler on the Roof, that introduces us to the lead character, the town he lives in, and the rules they live by. It also continues the Minkin-Ashman touch of bringing I Want songs into Disney movies. The song Bell gives both the heroine and the villain their I Want moments. Belle wants to get away from the boring village she lives in. Gaston wants to marry Belle. And that sets up the conflict between these two characters. 
Bell even sings the word I want in the reprise of the song during that famous moment when she runs on a hilltop after Gaston tries to force marriage on her. About 38 minutes into the movie, the second nominated song takes the term showstopper to a new level. Be Our Guest was originally written for Bell's father, Maurice, during his first visit to the castle. But it didn't really work there, so with a few lyric changes, the song became a centerpiece on Bell's first day at the castle. The enchanted candlestick Lumiere, sounding very much like French legend Maurice Chevalier, leads the song designed to entertain Belle during her dinner. It gave Mencken and Ashman the opportunity to write a song that Chevalier might have sung in his heyday, and one that Busby Berkeley would have loved to choreograph. Ma chère mademoiselle, it is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you tonight. And now, we invite you to relax, let us pull up a chair, as the dining room proudly presents your dinner. Be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre, why, we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff, it's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes. They can sing, they can dance. After all, miss, this is France, and a dinner here is never second best. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our guest. Beef ragout, cheese souffle, pie and pudding on flambe. We'll prepare and serve with flair a culinary cabaret. You're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flatware's entertaining. We tell jokes, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. Put it all in perfect taste that you can bear. Come on and lift your glass, you want your own Stressed, it's fine dining, we suggest. Be our guest, be our guest, be our guest. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, those good old days when we were useful. Suddenly those good old days are gone. Ten years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting, needing exercise, a chance to use our skills. Most days we just lay around the castle. Flat, be fat and lazy, you walked in and oops a daisy. It's a guest, it's a guest, sakes alive that I'll be blessed. Wine's been poured and thank the Lord I've had the napkins freshly pressed. With this, she'll not eat, and my dear, that's fine with me. While the cups do this, I'll chew it, I'll be bubbling, I'll be brewing. I'll get warm, I'll be hot, heaven's sakes, is that a spot? Clean it up, we want the company impressed. We've got a lot to do. Is it one up or two for you, our guest? She's our guest. She's our guest.
With Beauty and the Beast, we finally got a Disney movie with a title song. This one seems so simple in its creation, which makes it even more wonderful to listen to. As Belle and the Beast start to fall for each other, they prepare for a dinner together that the maid Mrs. Potts highlights with the title song. Using a five-note structure for each lyric line throughout, the song encapsulates the journey the two main characters have gone through since their first meeting. The line, tale as old as time, applies not only to the story of Beauty and the Beast, but the timeless story of two people who were barely even friends, then somebody bends, unexpectedly. Did you hear the five-note structure there? Barely even friends, then somebody bends, unexpectedly. Pretty amazing. As old as time True as it can be Barely even friends Then somebody bends Unexpectedly Just a little change Small to say the least both a little scared, neither one prepared, beauty and the beast. Ever just the same, ever a surprise, ever as before, ever just as sure as the sun will rise. As old as time Tune as old as song Bittersweet and strange Finding you can change Learning you were wrong Certain as the sun Rising in the east Tale as old as time Song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. After the cupboard with you now, Chip, it's past your bedtime. Not love. Not... 
Angela Lansbury is the voice of Mrs. Potts, and anyone who knows about Lansbury's stage credentials should not be surprised that the star of TV's Murder, She Wrote can sing. She won a Tony for the musicals Mame, Sweeney Todd, and Gypsy, and she proved her worth by performing the song as it is heard in the film on the first take. Instead of copying and pasting the title song into the end credits, Mencken decided to create a pop version that would play over the credits. The pop version of Beauty and the Beast was the first big commercial hit song for Disney, getting up to number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100. That's the second song from an animated movie to make it into the Billboard Hot 100, following the end credits pop version of 1986's Somewhere Out There from An American Tale. Though the film version of Beauty and the Beast was performed only by Angela Lansbury, the pop version over the end credits became a duet, sung by Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson. At the time, Celine Dion was not well known in the music business, still trying to carve out her niche as the Quebec-born singer was still learning English in order to find her way in the American recording industry. She was just 23 years old when she recorded the pop version of Beauty and the Beast, and it was her second English-language song in two years to make it into the Billboard Top 10. After more than 15 years in the music business, the 40-year-old P. Bill Bryson scored just his second Billboard Top 10 hit with the duet. Bryson had recorded lots of duets over the years with the likes of Natalie Cole and Roberta Flack, so Bryson became a mentor of sorts for Dion during the recording of Beauty and the Beast.
Like Beauty and the Beast, the second film to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Song was also originally conceived as a musical. Hook told the story of what happened to Peter Pan after he grew up. Steven Spielberg got his go-to composer, John Williams, to write the music for the songs, and Williams leaned on Oscar-winning lyricist Leslie Brickus for help. At some point during filming, it became obvious that Hook should not be a musical. A couple of the musical sequences had been filmed, and others had been recorded in the studio ready for lip-syncing on set when the announcement came that Hook was going to be a regular movie. But two songs remained in the final cut. One was We Don't Want to Grow Up, which a bunch of children sing in a school recital at the beginning of the movie. The second one is When You're Alone, performed by Peter's daughter Maggie as she prepares to go to sleep after her first day in Neverland as the prisoner of Captain Hook. Maggie's mother used to sing the lullaby to Maggie and her brother Jack, and Maggie sings it to keep from being afraid in this strange place. This is the song that received the Oscar nomination from Hook for John Williams, his second song nomination in two years, and for Leslie Brickus, who earned his fifth song nomination.
Amber Scott, who plays Maggie, was just six years old when she made her film debut in Hook, a daunting debut when you consider that it's a big-budget film directed by Steven Spielberg. She wouldn't act in another movie after Hook, though she did turn to producing a few indie films and documentaries in her adult years. Steven Spielberg has all but disowned Hook, saying the scenes in Neverland are hard to watch. He's never said anything about Amber Scott's performance of When You're Alone, but I would say it's one of the top moments in the movie, made even better by the fact that it has a purpose to the story and not just plopped into the middle of a scene without any meaning. The fifth nominated song was written for the end credits of the second most popular movie of 1991, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This was the first of two movies in 1991 featuring Kevin Costner in the lead role and one that had a lot of anticipation behind it. Four months before Robin Hood was released, Costner had won two Academy Awards as director and producer of Dances with Wolves. Hollywood and Costner's fans were anxious to see his next acting job, and he struck while the iron was hot with Robin Hood and Oliver Stone's JFK within a span of six months. Costner didn't get great reviews for his work as Robin Hood, particularly for his British accent, which often disappeared within a scene. Somehow, perhaps against all odds, the film was a worldwide success based on the action premise and the love story between Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Composer Michael Kamen wrote a love theme for Robin and Marian as part of his score, and it was this love theme that became the jumping-off point for the ballad, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. The lines that Marion and Robin speak to each other at two crucial points in the film also influence the lyrics. Marion tells Robin that she will not risk her life for King Richard, but rather that, I'll do it for you. And when Robin tells Marion that he would die for her, that line makes it into the song as well. While Robin Hood was wrapping up production in England, Brian Adams was also in England working on his next album. The Canadian rocker was partnering with producer Robert Lang on the album, which would be called Waking Up the Neighbors, when they were asked to help turn Cayman's love theme into a love song. Lang's nickname was Mutt, a name given to him since he was a young boy growing up in South Africa. In the music industry, more people referred to him as Mutt than as Robert. Reports say that Adams and Cayman wrote the song in 45 minutes in between recording sessions for Waking Up the Neighbors, then recorded it a month later. In a 2017 interview, Adam said the song literally wrote itself. Look into my Yeah. 
Before Brian Adams and Mutt Lang got involved, many famous singer-songwriters were asked to consider the project. According to the Billboard Book of Number One Hits, everyone from Annie Lennox and Peter Cetera to Lisa Stansfield and Kate Bush were given the opportunity to write a love song. Kamen nixed all of their ideas because he didn't want a soppy ballad. But he was a little bit hesitant to agree with the idea to make it a rock song, especially since the movie is set in the late 1100s. They, meaning Brian Adams and Mutt Lang, were asking us to make a transition from C to C-sharp and from 1195 to 1991 in the same breath, Kamen had said. The song stayed in the movie, and only over the end credits, but Kamen's fears about the song feeling out of place changed once it was released in July 1991. Everything I Do, I Do It For You took off all over the world in the summer of 1991, becoming one of the biggest hits in Brian Adams' native Canada, as well as Australia, Greece, France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. It's in those last two countries where the song really connected with the public. In the UK, the song spent a record-setting 16 weeks in number one, from July to October. In the United States, it only lasted for seven weeks at number one, but that was a long time for a song to stay at number one at the time. You'd have to go back to 1983 and the record run of Every Breath You Take from The Police to find the last song to stay at number one that long. After the absence of a number one song nominated for the Oscar in 1989, we now have two years in a row to feature an Oscar-nominated song spending some time at number one. But as Blaze of Glory found out, the position on the Billboard chart does not automatically mean you're going to win an Oscar. But it did at least help earn the first Oscar nominations for Brian Adams, Michael Kamen, and Robert Lang. It also gave the three of them the opportunity to compete for the prestigious Song of the Year and Record of the Year Grammys on February 25, 1992. They were not competing with any songs from Beauty and the Beast thanks to the different qualifying calendar for the Grammys, but the competition was tough anyway, including songs written by R.E.M. and Amy Grant in both categories but it was the song Unforgettable that won Song of the Year and Record of the Year at the Grammys for Natalie Cole. Everything I Do walked away from that Grammy ceremony with one win for Best Song Written for a Movie or TV. The competition consisted of just four songs instead of the usual five. Somewhere in My Memory from the 1990 smash comedy Home Alone was a nominee, as were two songs from the Spike Lee movie Jungle Fever. Just as no one raised a fuss about Fight the Power from Do the Right Thing not being nominated in 1989, no one seemed to care that none of the 12 songs that Stevie Wonder wrote for Spike Lee's Jungle Fever got much awards attention. It's likely that the title song was close to a nomination and might have been in the top 10 if the Academy had still used the preliminary ballot that they did away with 11 years earlier.
Jungle Fever and Gotta Have You were competing for that best song from a movie or TV Grammy in 1992, and the losses at the Grammys were just part of the failures that the Jungle Fever soundtrack had. Many of the songs were not well received by critics, but the album did spend a brief time at number one on the R&B sales chart in summer 1991. One month before the Grammy Awards was the Golden Globe Awards which is always the first major indicator of which song has the momentum to go all the way to an Oscar win. Everything I Do competed with only two of the songs from Beauty and the Beast, the title song and Be Our Guest. Another song that was in competition for the Golden Globe was Tears in Heaven, from the movie Rush. Eric Clapton wrote the song as a tribute to his son who had died in a fall in March 1991, with lyricist Will Jennings serving as co-writer. Jason Patrick and Jennifer Jason Lee play undercover cops trying to take down a drug smuggling ring, and they find themselves addicted to the drugs they are trying to take off the streets. It becomes a modern-day version of Days of Wine and Roses with a little more at stake. played one minute of the song because that's all we hear in the actual movie. It plays not long after Jason Patrick's character dies and Jennifer Jason Lee is shown running on the beach after giving her statement about the shootout that killed him. With its inclusion in Rush, Tears in Heaven was widely believed to be a strong contender for an Oscar nomination, thanks mostly to the song's backstory. The Academy Rules of 1991 don't specify how long a song has to play in a movie in order to make it eligible for an Oscar nomination. But it's likely there were a lot of internal discussions about making Tears in Heaven eligible. The Academy used to have rules in the 1940s and 1950s that specifically spell out how long songs have to be heard in a movie to qualify for Oscar consideration. The rule in 1991 only stated that a song, quote, must be a substantive rendition, end quote but doesn't qualify how substantive that rendition must be. The Academy didn't make the list of eligible songs of 1991 public, 
and I would not be surprised if Tears in Heaven didn't make the list. If it was eligible, it's not surprising that it missed out on an Oscar nomination. The song was released as a single in January 1992, just as Oscar nomination voting was taking place. Perhaps that was too late for voters to really take notice of the song. Tears in Heaven didn't really capture the public's attention until the acoustic version was released as part of Eric Clapton's Unplugged album in August 1992. But the Hollywood Foreign Press Association liked Tears in Heaven and the prospect of having Eric Clapton come to the Golden Globe ceremony, so they nominated the song. Will Jennings received another Golden Globe nomination that year for co-writing the song Dreams to Dream from the animated sequel and American Tale, Five O Goes West. The problem this film had going for it when it was released was that it competed directly with Beauty and the Beast for attention, and hardly anyone noticed it when it came out Thanksgiving weekend 1991. Beauty and the Beast made about 10 times as much money at the box office as Five O Goes West, which didn't help much to get much consideration to the original songs that James Horner and Will Jennings wrote. Dreams to Dream is sung by Five O's sister Tanya, who dreams of being a singer. Her performance of the song catches the ear of this evil cat who is tricking the mice into working for him before he eats them. Not as deep or enthralling a story as the first American Tale movie, and the song isn't as memorable as somewhere out there. Beauty and the Beast not only won the Golden Globe for its title song, but it became the first animated movie to win the Best Musical or Comedy Golden Globe. That set the stage for its eventual Oscar nomination history a month later, and the stage was set for the 64th Academy Awards on March 30, 1992. If the Broadway potential of Beauty and the Beast was felt while watching the movie, it was very obvious that the movie would get a Broadway adaptation after its three nominated songs were performed on the Oscar telecast. The great thing about this year was it was the second time that all the original performers appeared on the show. 
and that meant we got to see the faces of the people who sang the Beauty and the Beast songs. Paige O'Hara was first with Belle, dressed exactly like her animated counterpart and putting on a number that seemed to be a tryout for the stage production. Richard White showed off his baritone voice while singing as Gaston during that number. Jerry Orbach, the voice of Lumiere, wasn't dressed as a candlestick, but he was there to sing Be Our Guest while people dressed as waiters and can-can dancers twirled around him. Though we remember Orbach now mostly from his long-standing role on Law & Order, he had been a Broadway actor for many years, including as the original Billy Flynn in the Chicago musical. After those two performances, Brian Adams took off the blazer he wore for the show for a relaxed performance of Everything I Do. Michael Kamen played the piano on stage as well, and I'm not sure if Mutt Lang actually attended the ceremony. Movie scenes of men rescuing damsels in distress played during the song, and I don't think Adams was fully on key throughout the performance. Amber Scott was on hand to sing When You're Alone, though it was obvious that she was lip-syncing, which is fine because the presentation of her singing on a cloud was enough. The performance of the song Beauty and the Beast was definitely a tough one for the show's producers. Do you ask Angela Lansbury to do it, or do you ask Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson to sing? In the end, all three of them took the sage, and they did it seamlessly. Earlier in the show, Alan Menken won the Oscar for Original Score, which was not a surprise given the score's popularity. So, the only question for the original song Oscar presentation was, Will the movie musical that presenter Shirley MacLaine and Liza Minnelli proposed to Barbara Streisand while she sat in the audience ever happen? Maybe some other life, was MacLaine's answer. I'm sure Streisand sat in the audience wondering if she should have pressed for an original song to be written for her Best Picture nominated The Prince of Tides. But with Beauty and the Beast so popular, not even something along the lines of Evergreen was going to give Streisand a leg up on the title song to Beauty and the Beast, which was named as the Oscar-winning song of 1991. Alan Menken thanked a long list of people at Disney who helped make the song possible, including the three people who sang both versions. In Ashman's place was Bill Loch, who was Ashman's partner. Loch brought up the sobering fact that Ashman was the first Oscar winner to die from the AIDS virus. He gave a lovely tribute to the legacy that Ashman left behind and made us wonder what songs Ashman could have created if he had been able to be with us a little while longer. Ashman was able to write songs for Disney's next animated movie, and we'll learn about his parting lyrics on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. With his win, Alan Menken now had four Oscars and became the first person to win Oscars in both music categories twice. Though the Academy was quick to change its rules regarding the presence of musicals in the original score category way back in 1980 when Fame took the original score Oscar, no such uproar was really heard after Mencken won his second original score Oscar in three years. But unlike Michael Gore's work on Fame, Mencken did write a significant amount of non-song underscore for his films. Leslie Brickus will be the only one of the original song nominees from 1991 to not return for another chance to win the big award. Brickus amassed 10 Oscar nominations, five of which were for original song. His legacy and propensity to create popular songs enabled him to work less through the 1990s and into the 21st century. Brickus died on October 19, 2021 at 90 years old.
Mutt Lang and Brian Adams will continue their working partnership as the success of the album Waking Up the Neighbors was felt around the world. And when Michael Kamen needed their help again to craft a song out of another of his love themes, the two will be there to help and earn Oscar nominations for it. We'll hear that song in a few episodes. Before I close out this episode, I want to thank Carrie Moore for her support of the Best Song Podcast by sponsoring this episode. And thanks to all of you for singing along with me today. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.